This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Florida Gulf Coast University is hosting a virtual debate today on the topics of affirmative action in university admissions and student loan forgiveness. It's the first of a series of events being held by the university's new Office of Public Policy Events, which was created in response to legislation passed earlier this year that mandates that Florida's public colleges and universities host events and speakers from a range of diverging opinions on public policy issues. The debate's two participants definitely hold diverging opinions on many, if not most, issues. Dr. Cornell West is a progressive professor and author and currently an independent candidate for president. And Robert George is a conservative legal scholar and political philosopher and founding director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. The debate will be moderated by Dr. Christopher Phillips. He's founder and executive director of Democracy Cafe and author of a number of books, including his first, the international bestseller Socrates Cafe, A Fresh Taste of Philosophy, published back in 2001. Dr. Phillips has devoted his life to facilitating thoughtful and inclusive conversations among people of all walks of life from all around the world about deep and meaningful issues. He stopped by the studio earlier today ahead of the virtual debate, which starts at 2, to chat about his process preparing for for this sort of event and to explore his views on the hyper-polarized time that we find ourselves in. Let's hear that conversation now. Christopher Phillips, welcome back to Gulf Coast Life. It is a delight, especially to exchange with you, of all people. I appreciate that. Um, so tell us how this came about. You're in Southwest Florida to moderate this debate. Tell us the origin story. Yeah, it's pure serendipity. Um, my longtime friend, uh, Glenn Whitehouse, who's been at FGCU since its beginnings, uh, was in a meeting. And they were, were talking about how they're going to fulfill a mandate that was passed by the state legislature on civil expression, where they have to have at least, I think, four gatherings a year where you have somebody from the left and from the right really haven't added on specific topics. And Glenn said, Chris Phillips at, the, at that meeting. The new provost, Mark Rieger, said, okay, this is wonderful. And he, and he just contacted me and asked me to moderate a debate, which is a... Uh, different skill than my Socrates Cafe skills where I facilitate gatherings where we investigate timely or timeless questions or my new Cafe for Shakespeare project, which is sort of like Socrates goes to you know, Shakespeare's plays and looks at those questions in ways that we might solve our problems today. So uh, Dr. Rieger, he said, you know, I wish so much we could get Robert George, the conservative thinker and doer at the uh, Madison Institute at Princeton, and Cornell West to have at it. And I said, well, I know them both, and I've had exchanges with them both. And, he, and I offered to contact them for him. And so I contacted Brother Cornell, who's been my friend for over 12 years now. He came and spent the entire day with me and my students at the University of Pennsylvania after I had a teaching fellowship there after earning my Ph.D. at age 50. And he said, said of course I'll do it. Just he makes himself available to me. This is about the fifth time over the years when I've just thrust myself upon him. And he didn't know it was going to be Robert George, but I he would do it with anybody. And then I did contact Robert George, and he was quite delighted to participate as well. They're accustomed to engaging with They've one another. They've done this before. And so my goal as the debate moderator rather than Chris, the Socratic facilitator, I've researched uh, hours worth of their engagements, locking hearts and minds, 
And I want to get them, I want to provoke them a little bit. I want to get them to really have at it with one another because in this age of not just polarization, but where you see somebody who has differing ideas as your adversary, instead of maybe they're your helper. Maybe they're actually enabling you to see things in a, in a different light. But we don't have to see them as the other. We have to see them as a fellow democratic citizen who just comes at things differently than we do. And so let's open ourselves up for a few hours or a few minutes or whatever and, and just engage with them. Unless we're afraid, unless we feel like our view really doesn't have a firm foundation. And so what I want is to provoke them in a way that gets them to engage with one another on these specific topics of student loan repayment and affirmative action, because that's what the professors here at FGCU uh, voted on the topics that they want to have explored. And so for me, the pay dirt in a sense was that Cornell and Robert George have both weighed in on the ongoing conflict, the tragic confrontation between Hamas and the Gaza Strip and, and Israel and the Israel Defense Forces. And they've both been kind of hammered for their views. But here's where there's an interesting connection is that they both assert that every baby is precious, equal, and deserves to be brought up in a safe, nurturing environment free of terror, living in absolute terror at a time and climb when the unthinkable, the inconceivable is happening. And so I want to extrapolate from that. I'm going to read quotes that they've put on Twitter of late. So that is going to be part of this conversation well, to some a, degree. I think it has to be. I think it has to be. I, I, you can't walk on eggshells about these things. If we look at affirmative action, if we look at student loan repayment in a bubble instead of taking also a macroscopic look at, well, what have, where have they been weighing in of late on these fundamental views that every single child, every single baby is created equally, whether it's a Palestinian baby or Israeli baby, an Appalachian baby, uh, a, a baby born in the Mississippi Delta. I think that we have to look at how their views on that apply to affirmative action student loan forgiveness because in a democratic society how if, if there's a growing class of people who cannot afford to go to college or can yes gain access to $150,000 in ever growing cancerously growing student loans with interest that's just out of this world now uh, what does that say about a democratic society when we are deliberately not leveling the playing field? Justice Roberts, in ruling against affirmative action or writing the majority ruling, says, well, this is necessary to create a colorblind society. And I'm like, well, what the – what is a colorblind society? Is that really what we want? Or do we want a society that celebrates the diversity of color? So I was thinking in a democratic society – uh, where people of color in particular are getting left out more and more because all too often, tragically, uh, they're on the lower socioeconomic end. Uh, if we do take out as a criterion race, then are we really achieving a more colorblind society or are we doing just the converse? Um, or is the goal in a democratic society to create more of a class-blind society where we, again, level that playing field 
so that uh, maybe some way down the road, unless you know we're, our heads burn in the sand, maybe, maybe it will be possible. But has that time arrived right now? You make the call. Do you know their perspectives already to some degree on affirmative action in higher education and student loan repayments? I do not, which is going to make it even more fun. I, I have my suspicions. <laughs> but I think that, again, I want to take these views. I mean, Dr. George believes that life begins at the moment of conception. Dr. George believes that there's a man and there's a woman, that there's no gender fluidity is my understanding. Uh, Cornell doesn't believe that, far to the contrary, you know, and that we should celebrate, again, the array of genders, an array of fluidity. So how do we take these shared concepts that every precious baby, every precious child deserves equal advantage, and yet maybe there's uh, arguably a disconnect between that and the kind of society that these rulings recently by the Supreme Court are, are steering us towards. And if we look at it in this larger perspective of cancel culture, of not just polarization, I'm nostalgic for the kind of polarization that existed when I started Socrates Cafe in 1996 in the time preceding the Clinton, Bill Clinton's impeachment proceedings. I mean, I thought that was bad. And people were looking and grasping for ways to get together and engage one another face to face. But we've reached a whole nother level now. And I've experienced it myself. I mean, I had Brother West, he offered uh, to write the foreword for my newest book, Soul of Goodness. I lost a funder, a nonprofit funder in our, our Socrates Cafe, Democracy Cafe, because he did. It wouldn't have even occurred to me, you know. And then I was going to be on a PBS program. And I have the email. I should frame it. He's won three Emmy Awards. He interviews people. His whole program mission is about creating a more loving, caring, connected world. In this email, he says, if you dare to mention Cornell West, I will efficit from the interview. I hate Cornell West with a passion. Hate with a passion. And so I, I thought I was in some surreal world. I mean, I've read about other so-called very well-known people who present a persona and and do help others in becoming more connected to themselves, to the universe, and yet, yet they're a living contradiction of all those things in their real persona. But I never dreamed with this particular person I experienced it. So I was canceled. I, I told him to go jump in the lake. I used harsher language than that because Cornell's my friend. Hmm. It's not like I agree with Cornell. And, there's all kinds of things where I, I diverge with him. Now, the other thing, Mike, is that both Cornell and Dr. George, or, or Robbie as we call him, they've both experienced of late being shouted down. Dr. George went and spoke on, at a university on the West Coast just very recently. For the first time in his life, he was not allowed to speak. I mean, he got you know, probably a generous speaking fee, but he couldn't speak. They, the students, uh, just a small cabal of students, shattered him down, blew whistles, did anything to prevent him from talking. This is the time and climb we're in. I've been doing outreach in the Middle East. You know, four of my books have come out in Arabic, five. And I got an email from a retired liberal college professor in Northern California saying, basically, how dare you go there after what happened to the journalist Khashoggi, uh, who was brutalized and killed. 
And I said, that's all the more reason to go. These are ordinary people yearning for greater autonomy. And that begins when you feel like you have the right to formulate your own questions and within a group of philosophical inquirers, explore them to your heart's content. It all begins there. And there's this tiny window of opportunity right now where you can do that. All the more reason to go. You know, so it's always been subtly subversive what I do. Um, you mentioned PBS. I watched an episode of Firing Line from 2020. That was Cornell West and Robert George uh, talking about their friendship, their deep respect for each other. Um, is an event like today um, is part of its aim to demonstrate that people across the ideological divide can have respectful conversation. And if so, do you think it can move anybody's needle in the times that we're in? My short answer is I don't know. My longer answer is can we be very impassioned about our views? Can we deeply diverge and disagree? Can we have at it and still love each other? What does it mean to be civil? Does it mean to keep our voice in modulated tones? Um, I don't know two people who see things more differently than Cornell and, and Robbie George. And I want to provoke them. I want to get them out of that, you know, where we love each other and we're friends and brothers even as we disagree. And let's get them to air those disagreements. It, the funnest parts for me when I, when I did some deep research on them was with the one or two minutes when they clearly fundamentally disagreed. And, you know, Cornell can't hold himself back. He's from the, as he calls it, the chocolate side of town in Sacramento. He is scrappy. And so when that side of Cornell comes out, it's really fun because that's who he really is. You know, he's a, he's a fighter. Uh, so I want to get that out. Again, my point is, and I think it has to do also with my Greek heritage, my background. I have dual U.S. Greek citizenship. Is that you can yell and scream at each other. And at the end of the day, still love each other. You can see things extraordinarily divergently and still love each other. You know, uh, this idea of philia, of, of friendship love, which is also communal love, societal love, doesn't mean that we have to see eye to eye. I mean, look at our founding fathers, for God's sakes. You know, they got together in the Apollo Room at the Raleigh Tavern in Colonial Williamsburg. I went to school at William and Mary. That place is still there, reconstructed. They, they differed on the reasons for going into revolution, but they all agreed that it was time to have that revolt and uprising against King George. So I think there's so many people across the spectrum who are alarmed about so many directions or misdirections that the U.S. is taking, but when they see how people engage with deaf ears when they go to you know, to the news sites and what the, the way it's sensationally portrayed, I think they sort of shrug and feel a sense of resignation and that it's rather hopeless. For me, there's many things. There's many groups that claim to be doing civil inquiry. And it's all about, okay, now, can you paraphrase what this person said? Uh, which is cool, but dialogue is messy. Dialogue is chaotic. But there is a method. And that's what I earned my PhD about was the Socratic method. Let's get them to engage. Let's get them to have at it. But let's also practice the art and science of listening with all we got. Because when you really open up your ears, you really open up your heart. And even if you leave more entrenched in your view at the end than you did at the outset, 
if you really genuinely listen to another person's story, and you're all about story, my brother, um, if you do that, you are not unscathed. You will always feel a sense of connectedness, even if and as you go on to differ. They're not your adversary. You just see things in polar opposite ways. You know, they're not your enemy. It's not adversarial. What's wrong with fellow Democratic citizens seeing things in polar opposite lights? Nothing. Now, are there some views I find intolerable? you darn right. I bet you do, too. And I'll go at it hammer and tongs with somebody. I have to. I mean, if somebody comes up with a view about children as a father of 10 to 17-year-old that I find repugnant and repulsive or sexist, I'm going after them, bro. But I don't hate them. Instead, I'll want to find out when I calm down, why do you have that view? You mentioned uh, uh, being nostalgic for the kind of polarization we had in the mid-90s. As somebody who's lived literally in this world of discourse and Socratic pursuit of of honest conversation, how did we wind up here? Like, what's your short answer of how did we wind up here? Is it the rise of social media? Is it the internet being, you know, allowing us to be anonymous at a distance so we can spin up these different ideas that become truth even though nobody really mm-hmm. has to force each other to look at them face to face? I mean, where are we? How did we get here? Well, I think that the answer is all of the above. I miss the days when mainstream media was an honest broker of the news. I, th- I believe you and, and, and WGCU are a glaring exception to what I find is more of a rule of agenda reporting where we're only getting a slice of, of truth that's not allowing us to think things through for ourselves. I mean, one of my favorite sites is the League of Women Voters. They still break things down for us in a way where they respect us enough where they want us to think through the issues by ourselves. So I believe that, you know, my idea with Socrates Cafe Initiative was that it spill over more and more where people would become more and more involved in the civic sphere. I mean, we have hundreds of groups in every kind of community across the fruited plain of the U.S., but I don't see so much that spillover effect now. Rather, Socrates Cafes have become, a, and Cafe for Shakespeare now, become more of oases, sanctuaries, instead of where people become more involved in civil and civic life. So, as a student of the Greek Athenian polis, the cradle of Western democracy, when I see the same pernicious patterns repeating themselves today of people siloing themselves, um, I think that it's not enough to have these sort of Socratic love in Socrates Cafe, much as I still get a charge out of it as ever. I think we have to explore questions and ideas in ways that at least make it more probable that we'll find some kind of uncommon common ground. And at bare minimum, feel more connected as fellow citizens of a democratic society. We don't have to repeat the same mistakes. So far, every great society, every single one, has had its period of ascent, its period of stasis, and its period of decline. And by the time you realize it, you're in such irreversible decline that it's hard to arrest that pernicious development. My hope and my goal uh, I'm, I'm so grateful to have this chance of modeling and facilitating this debate between two thinkers who are extraordinary luminaries, but come at things from, from one extreme on the left, one on the extreme on the right, both who have experienced being shouted down of late, and to see what kinds of uh, 
uncommon common ground we can discover today. I'm I'm looking forward to learning from them. The thing I get the biggest charge out of is when they are approached and questioned in ways that they think they've seen it all, heard it all, done it all, but maybe you come at it from a different slant that gets them leaning in that can maybe model for the rest of us how two very different people can nonetheless, even if they really don't change one another's minds, by listening to one another, engaging with one another, do change one another's hearts a little bit. You know, it's really hard to convince somebody else to do this sort of thing Um you know, you can choose to do it yourself, mm-hmm. but it's a whole other thing to try to tell somebody else they ought to try to do it, right? Well, it's like uh, doing a, you know, I, I, I earned my PhD at age 50 and I've been a college prof on and off. It's like it's assigning students to do peer reviews. You know, it's so easy for them to slice up someone else's to see all that's wrong with it. And yet if somebody turns the table on them and sees all the flaws and foibles in their own, it's like, what, what, no, no, no way. But I think if we can serve as gentle mirrors, as Nietzsche put it, into one another's souls, and you know, and he extolled Socrates for that unequaled ability to do so, I think that there's hope, that there's some light at the end of this tunnel. I don't accept that the U.S. has to wind up where other open societies wound up as people closed themselves and siloed themselves and became victims of snake oil salesmen across the political spectrum, people, demagogues. I think that, you know, it's been interesting since these the conflict in, between Ukraine and Russia and now the conflict in the Gaza Strip. Um, tragedies were it's the innocence caught in the crosshairs, the the anonymous souls that, that bring, you know, I just want to weep for them because I have little kids. Any of us by the accident of birth could be in their situation right now. So my goal is to also create forums and spaces where we come away a little bit more empathetic to the sufferings of others. It's been fascinating since the Russian-Ukraine conflict began that people have gone more and more to our SocratesCafe.com site saying, is there a group here? And if not, will I, can I start one? Because I feel the need to engage with people face-to-face, physically. Not the Elon Musk calls Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it, the public marketplace. Nonsense. You have to see each other. You have to hear the inflection of their voices. You're not going to be limited to 240 characters in your response. It's, it's, that's the marketplace for insults and put-downs, uh, bots and, and lots of disinformation. But most of all, you hide behind that computer screen. Uh, at, at the very least, get on Zoom video and engage. I've had many global Socrates cafes and Cafe for Shakespeare's now where you have to be able to see each other. It's been fascinating to be able to bring together people from all across America and more and more across the globe. But it's, it's face-to-face that matters. And it's not enough to have the courage of your convictions. You have to have the courage to have your convictions challenged more so than ever because you don't want to emerge unscathed. You want to feel like it's okay to allow others to really possibly change your, your notions. Maybe it won't happen very often, but maybe maybe it will. Maybe what's revolutionary is respecting everybody else who's in that room with you, looking at them as fellow equals. I engage with kids in the same way I do with adults. They occupy all different space, and they all have such rich wisdom. But the lament that I have is that we want to share our story, you know, but we really don't want to hear others. So even as I look at you right now, 
listening to me with everything you have, I'm thinking, we all need to be Mike Canaries because <laughs> you're good. I mean, you really, there's a, whether you learned it on your own or whatever, you're, you're an amazing listener. And that in and of itself is transformative. And I want to say one more thing. I think back, uh, and I write about this in Soul of Goodness, you know, the late Congressman John Lewis, when the KKK, former KKK member near the end of his life, Ellen Wilson, came and begged him for forgiveness, there wasn't hesitation. There was, of course, because I'm a sinner too. I'm flawed and foible too. And you don't have to be a Christian. You can be a, you know, a dyed-in-the-wool atheist and hold that view. Uh, he he forgave him immediately, and it was transformative without conditions. And I think we need to take that outlook now, where maybe our the people that we look at most as our aggressors and our adversaries, maybe try to at least understand why they might harbor a racist view or a hawkish view, and maybe just by that attempt, the heartfelt attempt to understand why someone is coming from things at such a different direction as you are. Maybe that, maybe that in and of itself provides the pathway for moving our democracy forward in a time and clime when people are siloing themselves and being subjected to the uh, absolute nonsense of snake oil salesmen. Well, that is all the time we have. I'm sure we'll talk again. Thank you for your kind words. Uh, Dr. Christopher Phillips is an author and founder and executive director of Democracy Cafe and founder of the Global Socrates Cafe movement. Chris, thanks for your time. It was great talking to you as always. Thank you, Mike. Today's debate will be available online at some point in the future. Go to our website, wgcu.org gcl, to find a link to where it will be posted. If you missed any of the show today, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you find podcasts. Our show today was produced and directed by yours truly. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM NPR for Southwest Florida.